welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Anybody else want to try? Uh, some of you have maybe stopped having kids because you ran out of name options. There you go. So you game on. That was amazing. Every Sunday in December, we're preparing our hearts for Christmas, and I thought, you know, what greater place to start than a genealogy, right? We all love genealogies. Everybody loves a good genealogy, right? It's kind of a funny way for this book to start, and um, you might think if he had an editor that the editor would say something like, hey, Matthew, if you want people to read this, maybe don't start with a genealogy. Look at what Luke did, you know? He kind of put it a little bit later. You know, maybe ease people in. But Matthew knew, guys, what his audience, his first century Jewish audience, was riveted by. They were riveted by this kind of stuff. They were like, ooh, genealogy. You know, somebody would say, hey, you need to read Matthew's work. Ah, it looks kind of long. Starts with genealogy. They'd be like, oh, okay, well, why didn't you say that? It's great. Genealogies were a big deal to first century Jews. They functioned a lot like uh, resumes do today. You know, to see if somebody was qualified for something, they would look at their genealogy. So much so that some people would doctor their genealogies, just like people doctor their resumes today, right? King Herod, Herod the Great, was known to do this. He had some things in his genealogy he didn't like. He kind of moved it around, just like you might mess with your resume. 
having the right genealogy was especially needed for the job Jesus came to fill, and that was the job of the Messiah. You can see that Matthew here introduces him for that role in verse 1. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is uh, his given name. That's like his first name, his, his given name. In Greek, it's the, it's the word Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. But Christ, Christ is a title. A lot of times people think it's his last name. It's not. It's a title. It's a title that means Messiah or anointed one. And it was a, it was a term throughout the Old Testament that came to be associated with a long-awaited king. A king that was going to come and bring God's kingdom into this world and set all things right. The final king. And this genealogy, this resume, is Matthew wanting to show how Jesus is qualified. He is from the royal line of King David, qualified to be the Messiah. Now, a couple things before we dig into this that you should know. First one is that this genealogy is not Mary's genealogy. This is Joseph's genealogy. And you might go like, well, why is that appropriate? Because uh, Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, right? His stepdad. Mary is his biological mother. And so you might be like, what's going on here? You know, the Gospels make really clear this fact in verse 16. Instead of saying, Joseph, the father of Jesus, you guys kind of got the cadence as Dan was reading, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And then you get to Jesus. It doesn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary. It kind of breaks the whole flow. And then says, of whom Jesus was born, who is the Christ. And if you look a little further down in verse 18, it, it describes what happened. It says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about the virgin birth next week. But just for now, know that Jesus had a biological mother, he's a real human being, biological mother, Mary, but did not have a biological father. Jesus was conceived within Mary miraculously by the Holy Spirit. So we'll get to that next week. But why give Joseph's genealogy here then? And, and the reason is, this is what the first century audience would be interested in. They would want to see that Jesus was, from the legal lineage through his stepfather, a descendant of King David to be qualified to be Messiah. The second thing you should know about this genealogy is that it's not complete. This isn't every person between Abraham to Jesus. In fact, he tells us a little later, he made them in little neat, you know, 14 people chunks, you know. There's 14 people from, from Abraham to David, then from David to the exile, and then from the exile to Jesus. And it was very acceptable, guys, not to include everybody in a genealogy, okay? Very acceptable to do that. They did that a lot. And we know that happened here because between Perez and Minadab, people you know really well and love, there, was a four, there were four centuries, and there's just four generations there. Just like um, we might say that Jesus is the son of David, as a descendant of David, all the people in this line could be thought of as the son of somebody if that was their ancestor. So that's what you see here. And so I was thinking, if it's okay with you guys, maybe what we'll do is just do every name here. We would like read the name, see what it meant in Hebrew, talk about what we could know about that person. Does that sound good? Your, your game? Naim says it's going to take a while, but he's good with it. So, uh, no, what we're going to do is I want to ask this question. If this genealogy of Jesus is his resume, what kind of Messiah is he? Okay? This was meant to be his, his resume. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And I've got four answers from this genealogy. Jesus is a historical Messiah. He's a covenantal Messiah. He's a gracious Messiah, and he's a redeeming Messiah. First, he's a historical Messiah. Notice that the Gospel of Matthew doesn't start as a work of fiction, okay? It doesn't start with uh, once upon a time. 
It doesn't start with uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It doesn't even start with in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, right? No, the Gospel of Matthew is clearly intended to be a work of history. It starts with a genealogy. It starts with a list of real historical people, people we know were historical people, like Adam and, and David and Solomon. And he puts Jesus in his historical context. This person had a kid, this person had a kid, this person had a kid. And then here's Jesus. You know, he's in that flow of history. And even includes some people that were relatively recent to when Jesus was born. People that some of the readers and hearers of this might be like, oh yeah, I knew that guy. Or, oh, I'm related to that guy too. You know, these are real historical people. And this is important, guys, because it makes a distinction between Christianity and a lot of world religions. A lot of religious texts have stories, and in those religions, it's not actually important whether the story was true. It's not actually important whether it historically happened. For example, it's not historically important to Buddhism that Siddhartha did the things he did. It's not important. The important thing with them is there's a story, it teaches a lesson, it gives advice for your life. But guys, Christianity is not advice, it's news. The gospel means good news. These are news of things that have historically happened. Gospel in the first century was a word that was really commonly used for things like a new king coming or a great victory that occurred so that everything's changed for all of us because there was this great victory. And in the gospel, it's both. It's news of a king born and it's the news of a great victory. And so the gospel is good news. It's the good news that God has become a man and by his cross and resurrection has conquered sin and death for all who will believe in him. Earth-shattering news. Amazing news. Not advice. Historical news. It's really important that Jesus is a historical Messiah because if he came literally really in history and he's coming again at the end of history, then he's the one that can solve our very real problems in this world. Right? Not an inspirational tale. A historical Messiah. This history of the world, people say, you know, the world looks dark. You know, there's all these things going on. I don't know where this is headed, you know. Where's the world headed these days? Those kind of thoughts. It's headed somewhere awesome because Jesus is a historical Messiah and is going to bring it to a very satisfying conclusion, okay? So he's a historical Messiah. Secondly, he's a covenantal Messiah. He's a promise-keeping Messiah. We can see that in verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, now, Matthew highlights those people right off the bat because those two people received promises from God about the Messiah. Jesus is a fulfillment of a promise that was made 2,000 years before his birth to Abraham. Abraham was promised that one day one of his descendants would bless all nations, which seemed kind of absurd at the time. You know, that there could be a descendant of this, this wandering, you know, guy that would, that would bless all nations. Jesus is that one. So that was 2,000 years before Jesus. About 1,000 years before Jesus, God makes a promise to King David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. He promised that there would be a descendant from David that would reign forever. Okay? Jesus is the only one that can fulfill that. The promise sounds like this in 2 Samuel 7. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. A few hundred years later, I'm talking about 700 years before Jesus came, that promise was again brought up in Isaiah. It sounds like this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that was still while it was 700 years off that Jesus was going to be born. So the birth of Jesus is actually making good on promises that God made thousands of years before. Multiple promises. They were called covenant promises thousands of years before. And one thing this teaches us about God, which is maybe an inconvenient truth to some of us, but God is the kind of God that makes these massive long-term promises and then makes his people wait thousands of years to have them fulfilled, okay? Which is cool, but it can also be very frustrating. This is a kind of God that will make you wait a really long time. Really long time. God has this plan that he's playing out over vast stretches of time, and he's not going to rush it at all because we're impatient. Right? He's got a story to tell with every single event that's occurred in human history and with every event of your life, and he's bringing all these details, all these threads, to this like most incredibly satisfying conclusion. But you're going to have to wait to see it. These people have to wait a long time. Is God making you wait? You know, is God making you wait for a healing? Now, there's several of you that were praying for healing, and we've been waiting a long time. And I'll text you. I'll be like, hey, any improvements or anything? Nope, not yet. I'm going to keep praying, you know, and we're going to keep praying for you. Some of you waiting for healing. Some of you are waiting for the salvation of loved ones. Some of you are waiting for an opportunity for marriage. Some of you are waiting for provision, financial or otherwise. Some of you are waiting for a child. And the first thing we can say to you from this text is, Welcome to the club. Like, this is what it's like to follow this covenantal God. This is what he does. He makes his people wait. You know, that was ancient Israel's experience. You know what Israel means? So God named his people wrestle with me. Okay? It means wrestles with God. Remember, he was wrestling with Jacob, and then he names him like, hey, that was a good wrestle. Broke your hip. I actually won. But nice try. And then he names his people, he names Israel, and then all of his people wrestle with me. Like, what kind of a God is this? He doesn't say like, hey, follow me quietly and don't complain. He's like, no, you can wrestle with me. He wants to be wrestled with. Do wrestle with him. Apparently he likes it, right? But they wrestled with God. They wrestled with God as they waited for the promises to be fulfilled. That's why the Psalms sound the way they do, with tons of lament and complaint and talk about waiting on the Lord. You know, these people aren't like perfectly compliant, quiet, patient people. The second thing I'd say to you is, is that you can be absolutely confident that God will fulfill all of his promises to you. You can be absolutely confident that God will fulfill all of his promises to you. He has an impeccable record, right? We're talking about this genealogy being a resume. He has an impeccable record. He has impeccable references, you know, impeccable stories of his faithfulness. And this season before Christmas is traditionally called Advent. Advent means arrival or coming. And uh, during Advent, we remember God's amazing promises, like unbelievable type promises that he made, but then he fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. There were some pretty amazing promises. Can you guys think of some? Think of some unexpected promises that God made about his Messiah that were fulfilled in Christmas. Open book. Born in a manger. So he's born in a humble dwelling. Came humbly. Born in Bethlehem. Yeah, which is, was not where he, his parents lived. 
A star, yeah. There's that really obscure prophecy about a star that the Magi kind of figured out. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. Virgin birth, kind of a big deal. You'd think like, hmm, how's he going to pull that one off, you know? Born in Bethlehem, but also out of Egypt. That's weird, you know? And then that's pulled off because they run down to Egypt to hide and they come back and says, hey, see, I said in Hosea that my son was going to come out of Egypt. It's like, a lot of these prophecies, you wouldn't see how they'd all even happen. Prophecies about his beautiful life, his healing and miracles. Prophecies about his sacrificial death. I mean, have you guys read Isaiah 53? This is not something you can go like read about and then go, you know what I'll do? I'll just fulfill this one. Nobody would want to, you know? And yet it's fulfilled in perfect detail. Psalm 22. So his sacrificial death in amazing detail, his resurrection, his ascension. And so during Advent, we remember these amazing promises that God made and kept, right? And so uh, Josh made these Advent guides for you guys. If you didn't get one uh, coming in, they're out on the table out there. Also, if you go to covegrace.org, at the very bottom, we have a PDF link for it. But this is an Advent guide for you guys to kind of walk through with, uh, with yourself, with your family, leading up to Christmas. So each Sunday, there's a reading. There's one for Christmas Eve. There's one for Christmas. There's a reading. Um, you kind of read through it. You pray. There's a song to sing, a little thing you can scan to, to sing a song. You light a candle. That's important. You want to get five candles. Um, you got kids, like super fun for them to light candles. The first Sunday, which will be today that we're going to start, light a candle. Next week, you're going to light two. So the, the kids that are thinking ahead, they're like, no, 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 I don't want to do the first one. I want to light multiple candles. So I'm going to wait a few weeks. That's how you know if your kids have that delayed gratitude thing going on. But why we're doing this, we're doing this to prepare our hearts to really make Christmas a season of worship. And we've got an added advantage this year because Christmas is on a Sunday. And so if you come, no pressure, but you should come. We won't miss the point, right? <laughs> we're actually going to be worshiping on Christmas. It is Christ Mass, you know. Okay. But practicing Advent. It's a great way to prepare your hearts, and so please do that. If you guys haven't done family worship before, this is a great kind of way to start, and then you can get some materials to keep going. But historically, Advent has also been a season that focused not just on his first Advent, his first coming, but also his second coming. So just as God made these amazing promises and fulfilled them in his first coming, it assures us that he's going to fulfill his amazing promises he's made for his second coming. Promises like he's going to bring justice and peace over the whole world. Promises like he's going to rid the world of disease, disability, sin, oppression, war, and death. Big promises. Promises that he's going to make this whole world physically new. Promises that he's going to resurrect your body and make it new, and you're going to live in a resurrected, real human, raised body in a real resurrected world, enjoying the real physical presence of Jesus. They're big promises. You know, they're good ones, right? They're, they're amazing. They're promises that tell us, guys, that no matter what you're going through right now, he's going to make everything right. Like, literally, everything's going to be okay. In the most profound sense of the word, okay. And everything. And using the word literally, literally. Okay? <laughs> Every single thing is going to be made right. Those are big promises. And we can be assured that he's going to keep them because he's already kept the much more difficult promises of his first coming, right? Which is harder for God, to rid the world of disease and injustice and all these things, or to be crucified on our behalf? He's already fulfilled the much more difficult promises of his first advent, so we can be confident he's going to keep his ones of the second advent. He's got a perfect track record. And I think if we 
If we restored this focus of Advent, it would help those who are dealing with loneliness and sadness during this time, people that are, have lost, people that are suffering and waiting. I think if we restored this focus of Advent, people would be far less lonely and sad during this time. Because if Christmas is just about our family and our earthly blessings, there are going to be people left out in the cold, right? But if Christmas, if Advent if it's about God's faithfulness to his first coming, and therefore he's going to fulfill all his promises of his second coming, then no one gets left out. And Advent becomes even more powerful to those who are more sad. It's better news and gives more joy to those who are suffering the most. And so Jesus is a historical Messiah. He's a covenantal Messiah. He's a gracious Messiah. This is really fun. That part was fun too. Jesus is a gracious Messiah. The original readers would have expected names like Abraham and David on the resume of a Messiah. What they wouldn't have expected is the four female names. I don't know if you noticed them here, but this, they're highly unusual. In those days, genealogies were about men. You know, you read a lot of the ones in the Old Testament, they're, they're very male genealogies. But even more shocking was the particular women that Matthew picks here. Now remember, Matthew doesn't have to put any women in here, and he doesn't even have to put all the people. But he decided to pick these four women. And they weren't the matriarchs of the Old Testament. It wasn't like Sarah and Rebecca and Leah, you know, people you'd expect, right? No. Who does he pick? Verse 3, Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Verse 5, Ruth. Verse 6, Bathsheba, but doesn't call her Bathsheba, calls her the wife of Uriah. What's he doing here? You know, at least two of these women were foreigners. Rahab was a Canaanite, Ruth was a Moabite. Those are both enemy nations. It's kind of like a, a little head tilt to the fact that the Abrahamic covenant's going to be fulfilled, you know, through Jesus, and he's doing it along the way. But there's three of them had very scandalous pasts, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. And remember, he has no reason that he has to include these women. He doesn't have to include all the people. He's making a point that Jesus is a gracious Messiah. Now, you might not remember the story of Tamar. You might have put it out of your mind. But it's in Genesis 38. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. So he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes. And so Judah's son, Tamar's husband, dies. Tamar says to Judah, like, hey, you need to provide me a husband. One of your boys would be great. You know, any one of them, I don't care. He doesn't do it, and so when Judah failed to take care of Tamar and give her a husband, she disguises herself as a prostitute, she seduces her father-in-law, Judah, and then she gets pregnant as a result and gives birth to Perez and Zer. Perez continues the Messiah's line. That's an interesting choice, right? That's an interesting choice to put in here, and I promise I can get more Christmassy as we go, but... Um, <laughs> But this is something that, that is amazing, right? I mean, what is this showing? What is he doing here? Jesus doesn't have, guys, the perfect Christmas letter kind of family. You guys receive any of those still? The perfect Christmas letter, right? Like, everybody's been hugely successful this year. All their kids are above average. Really, all of our kids are above average, right? I mean, every one of us has above average kids. I guess that's how it works. But, guys, the stories of Jesus' family are a little bit more rugged right? His Christmas letter has some pretty rough stories about what his family's been through. How about Rahab, verse 5? Remember um, that God had freed Israel from Egypt, and then he brings them into the promised land eventually after 40 years. And when they get there, there's people living there. What nerve, right? It's occupied. And it's occupied by people that are going to be very hard to defeat. 
There's even people that live in a huge walled city called Jericho. They send in some spies to check it out and see where its weaknesses are. They meet Rahab there. She's a prostitute in uh, Jericho. She actually hides the Israeli spies, and she asks uh, to be spared by them. She actually ends up joining God's people. She's like, I want to go with you guys, right? And escapes uh, the destruction that's coming upon our city. Once again, it's a foretaste of the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled. But not only was Rahab welcomed into the covenant people of God, which was amazing, but she also became the great, 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 many greats, grandmother of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. A Canaanite prostitute in Jesus' genealogy. What does this show us? Well, one thing it shows us is that all you need is to know your need of Jesus and turn to him, and you'll be received. I mean, think of Rahab. She, she knew her city was headed for destruction, you know? She knew she needed to flee. I'd ask you guys, is our city headed for destruction? Is it? The signs have been clearly posted. Okay, so maybe look around. But our city, our world is headed for destruction. She knew that, and what did she do? She, she fled to the, to the God of Israel. And she was rescued and she was welcomed in. I just ask you, how about you? Have you fled the city of destruction? Have you found your refuge in Jesus? It's very simple. All you got to see is see your need for him and come and grab hold of him. How about Bathsheba, verse 6? Actually not called Bathsheba though, right? Called the wife of Uriah. Who was she? Well, she was the wife of one of David's most faithful soldiers, Uriah. But that didn't mean much to David when David was on his rooftop and somehow caught sight of Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing, and he decided he wanted her, and he took her, and she got pregnant while her husband was out on the battlefield risking his life for David, right? But he didn't care. He took what he wanted. And to cover it up, David had Uriah killed and took Bathsheba to be his wife. Their first child dies, but their second child is Solomon. And, um, you know, Matthew could have just said, and David was the father of Solomon. It's clean right? It's clean. Or he could have said, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Less clean, but cleaner than what he did. He says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now that's the messy way to put it, right? (laughs) Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Matthew is intentionally highlighting the sins of God's people, of the line of Jesus. Matthew is showing God's persistent grace for his people, you know? Remember that David already knew the Lord when this happened, right? How about you? Do you think you've wandered too far from the Lord? Do you think you've kind of gone too far down a road of sin to return home? Jesus is a gracious Messiah. Like, he'll receive you back. He receives back the adulterous, the murderers, and even the self-righteous people who love to judge them, right? It's amazing, isn't it? And when you turn to him, When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you're going to find what Hebrews 2 says, that he is not ashamed to call you as brothers and sisters. That's what we see here in this lineage. He's obviously not ashamed to call these people his brothers and sisters. And he's not ashamed of us either when we turn to him. Your your family, you know? Um, You you might say, well, you know, I'm not really a family. I'm not a Jew. I'm not listed here. But Galatians 3 says that, know then that those who are of faith are the sons and daughters of Abraham. That if you trust in Jesus Christ, then you are in this family, and you're in this family where, like, your whole life gets redeemed. Isn't that amazing? 
It's so amazing. So you think like, okay, what kind of a resume is this? This isn't just a resume of a king. This is a resume of a redeemer. So the last point is Jesus is a redeeming Messiah. Like when you join this family of the Messiah, you don't just get forgiven of your sins and welcomed into his family. That's enough. But he does more. He actually redeems your past. He actually redeems your past. Like guys, we live in like, we live in a disposable culture, right? Things break, we throw them away. Jesus doesn't roll like that. Jesus redeems. He can redeem our past. He can redeem our past no matter how bad they are, right? He shows his glory by taking terrible messy past of sin and shame and making them into a new story of his grace. That's what he did with Israel's past. I mean, you look at the story of Israel, and they look like they're doing everything they can to jeopardize God's promise, right? It just looks like at every turn they're like, okay, how can we break this, you know? Okay, how can we wreck this story? <laughs> you know, they're just like looking around, coming up with new creative opportunities, right? The book of Genesis is crazy. Have you read it? It's crazy. My mom, she became a believer after I did about 10 years later. I gave her a Bible to read, and she's reading through Genesis, and she's like, I did not think the Bible would be like this. She's like, this is shady. And I'm like, yeah, this is super shady, Right? But God redeemed their whole story through the birth of Jesus. It's as if in the birth of Jesus, the whole story of Israel is set right. It all suddenly makes sense. It all of a sudden like, glorifies the God who saves. Jesus redeemed all their sin and failures. I mean, who would have thought that a story that started with incest, a Canaanite, prostitute, Moabite, murderer, some adulterers, would result in the birth of the sinless Son of God, the Savior of the world? I think that's what they call a plot twist, right? Like, did you see that coming? That's actually what's called redemption. And he'll do that in your life too. In the body of Jesus on that first Christmas, we have the the holiest thing on earth emerging from the sinful mess of God's people. All their sin, all their shame made holy in Jesus. And that's what you have too if you're in him. All your sin and shame made holy in Jesus. That's his redeeming power. If you're in his family, he's redeeming your story too. Because you might be looking at your life, and it doesn't take long to, to build up a, a life of sin where you might look at it and go like, what good is my life anyway? I like totally ruined this. I've done so many things to just destroy this story. What good could come of my life? And you could look at this text and you go, well, what good could come of Tamar dressing up to seduce her father-in-law? What good could come from the life of a pagan prostitute in Jericho? What good could come from David sleeping with his friend's wife and then killing him? What good could come from the story of Israel? Just the birth of the world's Messiah. It's amazing. Power of God's redemption. This genealogy is a a resume of a redeemer. It, It shows what he can do with ruined lives. That he can redeem them. And he can make them new. Whatever mess you've gotten yourself into, you come to him, he's redeemed your story. And he can do this because Jesus came to pay all of your debts. If we look a little further forward in Matthew, we know how he did it. In chapter 20, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. And then a little bit later in Matthew, you see him at the end of the book on a cross as he dies for our sins. When he went up on that cross, he took all the sins of all of his people, all the sins of this genealogy of the people that were in him. He took all those sins up on the cross and paid for them, and he's taken all of yours too. Yeah, and I just say, turn to him. Are you crazy? You don't want this? It's unbelievable. He'll take away all your sin if you come to him. He'll welcome you into his family. 
not as like some distant cousin you don't want to talk about, brings you all the way in, puts you in the Christmas letter, right? You're all the way in the family. He's owning you. You're his. And then he's going to set about making that whole story of wreckage that you're embarrassed of a story of God's redemptive grace, just like he did with these people. And so I'd say, hand them your mess like Tamar and David. You know, take hold of him as your own savior. In a little bit, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and as you hold the bread and the cup, it's a symbol of us taking hold of Jesus. You know, and if you're, even this morning, if you never trust in Jesus, but this morning you're like, you know what, that sounds like really good news. Yeah, that's why it's called good news. It's totally for you. You can have this today. Then you could, as your first act of faith, take the Lord's Supper. You shouldn't take it if you're not a believer. But if you became a believer today, that taking hold of that bread and that cup could be the sign of you taking hold of Christ, making him your Messiah. And so give him your mess like Tamar and David did. Start living your life with God's covenant people like Rahab and Ruth did. That's an important piece, by the way. Christmas is one of those times when people are a little bit more inclined to, to be here and stuff. But the real change that God makes in people's lives is in the covenant community, you know? So Ruth, she joined the covenant community, was transformed by being with God's people. Rahab joined the covenant community. Follow him and watch him redeem your life. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for anyone that's here that felt in some way when they came here that they did not belong here. They felt too sinful. They felt too shameful. They felt not serious enough. And I just pray, Lord, that this genealogy of your son Jesus would be a big welcome sign. Welcome to the community of Jesus. And I just pray that you would call them to, even right now, turn from their sin. Be like, there's no sin that I want right now. No relationship I want right now. No addiction I want right now that is better than what I just heard. Lord, help your love to compel us. That we look at what you've offered us in your son Jesus and we would turn from our sin and cling to him and then find our lives made powerfully new. Not just through our own striving, but through your spirit, through Jesus' own life living through us. We pray, Lord, as we take the supper here, as we take communion, that you'd really feed and strengthen us, even as you have from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.